you'd like to follow along with me as I read our text this Lord's Day, you may turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. There the Apostle Paul says, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. As we proceed further into our discussion concerning divorce and remarriage, I would remind you that a person's strict or rigid position concerning divorce and remarriage does not necessarily guarantee biblical faithfulness any more than another person's lenient or soft position toward divorce and remarriage. For one can be just as guilty of unfaithfulness to God and to his word either by adding restrictions that are not found in Scripture as by removing restrictions that are found in Scripture. Thus, as we approach this subject, let us neither fall to the extreme of legalism whereby we make the regulations for divorce and remarriage more strict than God himself has made them, nor swing to the opposite extreme of antinomianism, whereby we make the regulations that are given to us in Scripture more tolerant than God has made them. You see, dear ones, our goal in this whole discussion is not to be either strict or tolerant, but rather to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture. This Lord's Day, we will be considering some objections and questions that have arisen in our discussion related to divorce and remarriage. And in the sermon this Lord's Day, I will seek to, first of all, respond to a biblical objection that's found in Romans 7, verses 2 and 3, And second, I will seek to answer particular questions concerning divorce and remarriage. So first of all, let us look at a response to a biblical objection found in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And it may be worded to this effect, the objection. Doesn't Romans... Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, teach the only biblical ground for a lawful remarriage to be the death of the spouse. But while it is true that the only biblical ground for a lawful remarriage specifically mentioned in this particular text, in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, is the death of a spouse. Nevertheless, the death of a spouse is not the only biblical ground for a lawful remarriage, as we have previously noted from passages that are found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. You can refer to the previous sermons if you want a more detailed discussion with regard Two, the lawful grounds presented in those passages for a lawful remarriage. 
You see, there was giving a complete list of the reasons for a lawful remarriage is not the purpose of Paul within this passage. Although both death and a lawful divorce do in fact dissolve the marriage bond and thus grant the right to remarriage. Nevertheless, Paul's sole purpose in mentioning only death as dissolving the marriage tie and granting, therefore, the right to remarriage is so as to give an analogy that closely parallels a Christian's death to the condemning power of the law, as we shall see momentarily. Listen to the words of Calvin in his commentary on this passage, wherein he states, that Paul was not seeking to give a full discourse on divorce and remarriage, but rather to give an illustration that fits his purpose. Calvin says, but as it is, but as it was not his purpose to decide here the character of the bond of marriage, he was not anxious to mention the causes which release a woman from her husband. It is therefore unreasonable that anything decisive on this point should be sought here. Furthermore, the faithful and learned covenanted pastor John Brown of Blumfrey has likewise noted in his commentary on this passage the following. He says, Next, he, that is Paul, proves it in a more particular manner. That is, Paul proves that the law only has dominion over a man as long as he lives, according to Romans 7.1. He proves it from a particular law, that is, that law of marriage betwixt man and wife, where we may mark that it is not his scope to speak fully to the doctrine of marriage and handle it according to the full latitude and all its exceptions but only he speaks of it as it was first instituted of God. <clears throat> well, let us briefly consider the context in which Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 occur. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, having stated in Romans six fourteen. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. He now continues to clarify and expand that idea. What does it mean not to be under the law, but rather to be under grace? Well, Paul is about to tell us and to illustrate that particular principle. Paul begins in Romans 7.1 by stating a universal truth which he is confident all will affirm with him. That truth is this. The law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. The law of God given to man addresses man within this earthly context. The law of God is not made for those who are dead, but for those who are living, as with Adam in the Garden of Eden, wherein he was commanded not to eat of the forbidden fruit, as well as with all mankind, as illustrated and as given to us in the Ten Commandments. It is for men who live here upon the earth, this being true. The Apostle infers, the law's power and authority to the living ends with their death. Paul now illustrates this principle by drawing from an analogy in marriage. In verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> Just as a woman is united to her husband by the marriage covenant, and she cannot dissolve that covenant with her husband, so long as he is faithful to the terms of that covenant, so all those descending from Adam by ordinary generation have been united to the law of God by means of the covenant of works, 
And they cannot dissolve that covenant. So long as the law of God is holy and is faithful to the terms of that covenant. Which is, of course, always to be the case. The law of God is always faithful to the terms of that covenant. But one might ask, why would one want to be released from the law as a covenant of works? Certainly not because the law of God is unrighteous or wicked in the least. To the contrary, Paul says in Romans 7.12 that it is holy, just, and good. But rather, because the law of God in itself does not offer any grace to desire obedience or to help to keep the law. And so the law of God in and of itself, the law of God as a covenant of works, condemns all those who break it. You see, there was whereas man was able to keep God's law as originally created. When he fell, he became totally disabled from perfectly keeping it as he was bound to do under the covenant which God made with him in the Garden of Eden. The curse of breaking God's covenant not only affected Adam, but has also plagued all Adam's posterity descending from him by ordinary generation, so that we are all conceived in sin and are defiled with sin from the moment of conception. And in this sinful condition, the righteous law of God to which Adam's descendants are joined by the covenant of works that was made with Adam says to every single individual, do this, don't do that. But we know as we are born, we are disabled. We can't. We can't do that. We cannot help but doing what is forbidden. We violate God's law continuously. Our desires, our intellect, and our will have all been polluted by sin. And thus, our helpless condition in being by covenant under the law is this. We are totally unable to make ourselves acceptable to God, to keep His law, or to escape its just condemnation. Well, what is to be done? Here Paul continues his analogy and says in Romans chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, that just as death to one of the spouses in a marriage ends the marital covenant and permits a lawful remarriage, so we must die to the law as a covenant of works and be remarried to Christ under the covenant of grace. For when we embrace there was the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, we die to the law of God as a covenant of works through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we die to the laws having any authority to command our obedience as the ground for our justification or sanctification. And we die to the laws having any authority to condemn us for our disobedience. That's what we deserve. True. But by grace, we are delivered from that condemnation. And we are raised from death with Christ. Raised from death to the covenant of works to be joined to Christ in the covenant of grace. For our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, has through the covenant of grace, He is the one who has perfectly kept the covenant of works for us. Whereas we were condemned by that covenant, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and fulfilled the covenant which Adam could not fulfill, or did not fulfill, rather. He had the power to fulfill it. He had the ability to do so, but He did not. He willfully sinned against God, but the Lord Jesus Christ did keep it. 
perfectly. He kept it for us. And He, in the covenant of grace, pardons all our sins, imputes to us His glorious and perfect righteousness. He purchases for us faith, repentance, adoption, obedience, sanctification, and glorification. Every single thing to the minutest detail that we need in the Christian life has been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing accepted. We do nothing simply by our own effort, by our own will. It is bought for us and purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glory of our salvation. That it is all of grace from beginning to end. We have everything, dear people of God, we have everything we need to make us fit for heaven. For it has been bought for us, paid for by our heavenly husband in the covenant of grace. Are we then as Christians finished with the law of God altogether? As a covenant of works, yes, absolutely. Under the covenant of grace, however, the moral law is yet to us a rule of life. It yet reveals to us our sin and our continual need of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His grace. It yet reveals to us the will of God in all areas of life. And it is yet the standard of God's holiness to which we are being conformed by God's Spirit. Under the covenant of grace, we do not strive, dear ones, to obey God's law in order to be righteous, or more acceptable before God than we presently are. Because that's impossible. We can't be more righteous than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Rather, we seek to obey the Lord. We apply the covenant of grace to our lives. Because we love the Lord. We love His commandments. And we desire from the bottom of our heart and with all of our heart to show to the Lord our thankfulness for His redemption. So you see, dear ones, the thrust of Paul is not the covenant of marriage, of earthly marriages here upon the earth, in Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. But the thrust of Paul is the covenant of grace. He does not discuss divorce as the dissolution of marriage and the right to a subsequent remarriage in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, because, listen closely, it is not proper to speak of Christians as being divorced from the covenant of works. For in a lawful divorce, one may return and be reconciled to the former spouse. But as Christians, we cannot return and be reconciled to the law as a covenant of works. Rather, we are dead to the covenant of works. And in death, there is no possibility of returning to be reconciled to the law of God as a covenant of works. Only death as dissolution of a marriage is therefore appropriate as an analogy for Paul's purpose. <clears throat> However, as to there being a lawful ground for remarriage beside the death of a spouse, consider with me very briefly, Deuteronomy chapter 24. We have considered this passage earlier in a previous sermon, but let me 
very briefly point out to you in this passage that there is permitted a lawful remarriage apart from the death of a spouse. We find in Deuteronomy 24 that a woman is put away by her husband, divorced by her husband, because he finds some uncleanness in her. And in verse 2, it says, And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. She could not do so if there was not a lawful dissolution of the previous marriage. But because there is a lawful dissolution of the previous marriage, she can become another man's wife. And she is another man's wife. It is not an adulterous relationship. It is lawful. Notice furthermore that the same thing happens in this particular passage with a second husband. She is put away, given a bill of divorcement by the second husband. And in verse 4, notice the terminology that is used. Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again. He is not her present husband. He is called her former husband because that marriage has been dissolved. In verse 3, the second husband is called the latter husband. It's not an adulterous relationship. If it was adulterous, could not refer to the second husband as being a husband at all. And in verse 3, at the very end, says that the second husband, which took her to be his wife, not his harlot, not his concubine, but his wife, not his mistress, but his wife. So very clearly, the Old Testament scripture gives us that foundational truth that there are other just grounds for a lawful remarriage other than death. Furthermore, remember the words of the Lord in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. If you'd like to turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 19, we find these words. The Lord says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. There the Lord states that divorce for any cause, for just any cause, that a man might dream up is unlawful. God does not grant divorce for man-made reasons or grounds. But He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, makes one exception for a marriage wherein there are two Christians. One exception to the general rule, except it be for fornication. In that case, one who divorces and marries another does not commit adultery. There is another example whereby the Lord gives Himself, the Lord gives a just cause for a lawful remarriage apart from death. Moreover, the Apostle Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry... Thou hast not sinned. Here again, the Apostle Paul teaches that one who is loosed from his spouse, 
For a lawful cause does not sin if he or she remarries. From the text in Romans chapter 7, verse 3, also note that Paul says that the woman will be called an adulteress if she marries another while her husband, he says, while her husband is still living. With this we wholeheartedly agree. If he is in fact still her husband and not her former husband, as in Deuteronomy 24.4, then she does commit adultery if she marries another while he yet lives. But in a lawful divorce, the marriage is dissolved so that he who was at one time her husband is no longer her husband and has become her former husband. And a subsequent remarriage does not therefore make her an adulteress. One more observation from the text in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. The same concept of being bound and loosed is used with regard to establishing a marital covenant. That's what it means to be bound in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, when it speaks of being bound. And... The concept of loosing is also used in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. That's the idea of that marriage being dissolved. The dissolution of that particular marriage being loosed. The same concepts of being bound and being loosed are used as well by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 and verses 27 and 28, which we just read. Just as the loosing of or freeing from the bond of marriage in Romans chapter 7, which is due to death, dissolves that marriage bond and permits a lawful remarriage, according to the Apostle Paul, so likewise, I submit that the loosing from the marriage bond in 1 Corinthians 7.15 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28, which are not due to death, but due to a lawful divorce, also dissolves the marriage bond and permits a lawful remarriage, as is implied in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, and as is explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28. If he, if he marries the one who has been divorced or divorced his wife, if he remarries, he does not sin, Paul says. The point that I'm simply making there is that language of being bound and loosed. Bound implies the establishment of a marriage. Loosed implies the dissolution of a marriage, like death. But it also applies in the language of the New Testament to divorce, a lawful divorce as well. Now I proceed the second main point to answer particular questions concerning divorce and remarriage that have been presented to me. I cannot cover them all this Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day, we'll continue to look at a few more objections and answer a few more questions. But I present a couple this Lord's Day, nevertheless. A couple questions. First of all, what about a Christian who marries one who professes to be a believer, but after marriage reveals that he or she is not really a Christian? Well, first, such a deception, if it is in fact a willful deception on the part of a person, is wicked. And I believe in a Christian settled state of the church is worthy of censure. 
is definitely worthy of censure by the church if the person is a member of the church. And I would even propose is worthy, that type of censure is worthy, or that type of deception is worthy of censure by the state as well. That type of fraud, if you will, to intentionally and willfully deceive on that basis. If the Christian had good reason to believe that the spouse was a believer, although in reality he or she was actually a hypocrite, then the Christian can no more be guilty of violating God's word to marry only in the Lord, as we find in 1 Corinthians 7.39, than elders are guilty of admitting a professing believer into membership who subsequently reveals that he is not a Christian. Since we cannot judge the heart of any human being and know with absolute certainty what is in the heart of of another human being, but we can only judge the words and the actions of others, it is possible to be misled by the profession of a person. Second point that I would make with regard to that question. This is a very, very good reason to go through the steps of courtship before becoming engaged or married. An extended courtship will not absolutely guarantee that this will not happen, but it is more likely to guarantee that this does not happen. For in courtship, the parents will lovingly supervise and will be looking for a proven track record on the part of the young man or the young woman with testimony from his or her parents or relatives, friends, elders, etc., Under the godly supervision of loving parents, such hypocrites will more likely be weeded out. And third, with regard to this first question, it may be asked whether such a deception is not fraud, and therefore a lawful divorce or lawful annulment of the marriage in order. If the deception was carefully and premeditatedly planned out, then indeed we may classify it in that arena or category of fraud. However, does the marriage of an unbeliever to a believer so strike at the marriage bond that a believer and unbeliever cannot continue in that bond? Not according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13 where the Apostle Paul says that unbelievers and believers can live lawfully together in the estate of matrimony. And incidentally, in that passage, we're not told from the text how it came about that there were believers and unbelievers joined in marriage, whether by conversion after marriage on the part of one of them, whether by apostasy after marriage, On the part of one, one professed to be a Christian and then apostatized, said, no, I'm not a Christian. Or whether by willful disobedience on the part of a Christian in marrying one who was not a Christian. We're not told how these unions came about. But what Paul says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, do not seek to be released from the bond of marriage if the unbeliever desires to live with you. That we know. Therefore, I would submit, we have no warrant from Scripture that I'm aware of that would permit the annulment of a marriage or a divorce, that was, uh, or a divorce, a lawful divorce from a marriage that was contracted upon such a deception. A second question asks concerning a Christian who learns after marriage that he or she is living with one who is unlawfully divorced so that the present relationship is unlawful. You understand the question? There was not a lawful dissolution of the first marriage. A second marriage has taken place 
what is to be done. Again, we are responsible to find out as much information as possible about any previous marriages, relationships contracted by a potential spouse. That's the responsibility of the individual. It's the responsibility of the parents if the children are yet under the roof of their parents. And it is the responsibility of elders and particularly the pastor who marries them to find out those very questions. And that is one reason why the bands are given three weeks in succession each Lord's Day. Does anyone know just cause why these two cannot be united, lawfully united in marriage? Sometimes it happens that we learn God's will concerning various areas related to marriage and what constitutes a lawful marriage, what constitutes a lawful divorce after we are married or perhaps even after a divorce. We learn this information. We become aware of it whereas we were not aware of it previously. That's a tough position to be in. But I would tell you, dear ones, regardless, once we learn what is the will of God and what our duty is before God, it is our responsibility to act upon it. If, however, the previous marriage was not lawfully dissolved, then the present relationship was not lawfully constituted. And to continue in that relationship would be to willfully commit adultery. According to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19.9, Whosoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another commits adultery. And the Lord continues, whoever marries her, likewise commits adultery. What should one do then in such a case? Well, I submit to you the following, that he or she should withdraw from the present relationship and certainly, if there are children involved, it makes it even much more heart-wrenching, much more anguish-filled. But she or he must withdraw from the present relationship and encourage the one with whom he or she has been living in what was thought to be a lawful marriage to seek to be reconciled with the spouse for which he or she was unlawfully divorced. If there is no desire once that is undertaken to go back to the, to the spouse from which the unlawful divorce occurred, if there is no desire on the part of that spouse to be reconciled, but that spouse continues over an extended period of time, perhaps a year, passes with steadfast refusal to be reconciled, then I submit it may be judged that this spouse that sought reconciliation has been willfully deserted and may be declared to be lawfully divorced by the church courts, even if the, the laws of the land would not recognize it, yet the church can declare this individual has been, has been deserted, lawfully deserted, and then a lawful divorce recognized before the church can ensue. After such a declaration by the church courts, the couple that were parted 
due to the unlawful relationship may, under the supervision of a faithful church guiding them, be lawfully united in actuality and reality, lawfully united in marriage. All of these other steps must needs take place first to deal with what is yet unresolved before that can occur. Was there sin committed if both were ignorant of the unlawfulness of this relationship? I would have to say yes, there was still sin committed because ignorance is no excuse for the breaking of God's law. Although sin due to ignorance is a far less aggravated sin than willful ignorance or willful sin against God's law. For you remember, even in the Old Testament, Leviticus 5.18, sins of ignorance were still to be confessed. They were yet to be taken before the Lord and sacrifices offered for sins of ignorance. And it says the Lord will forgive them if they committed some sin ignorantly. Why is it that we find in 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, that would infer, I believe, those sins which we know we have violated. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins that we're aware of, that we have confessed specifically. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both willful and ignorant sins. And I would again say that in such situations the church must reach out to couples in such a situation, not in an intolerant, harsh manner, but in great love, compassion, work with these families. Stand with them every step of the way as they work through these very difficult situations. They have an advocate in heaven, but they must know they have an advocate here upon the earth in their elders and in the members of their congregation who will come up alongside of them and uphold them and pray for them as they take these very difficult steps, particularly if there are children involved or particularly if this relationship has continued not for just a day or a week or a month, but for years. Because it's not the passing of time that makes that relationship lawful. If it is unlawful, it needs to be dealt with in a righteous and biblical manner. Now, in answering some of these questions, I may raise more questions in your mind and feel free to put those down on paper too. And we'll try to get to those Dear ones, in conclusion, the only way to escape the unbearable burden of the condemnation of God's holy law under the covenant of works is to come to Christ, our heavenly husband. For only he is sufficient and able to take that burden and bear it for you. The Lord invites all who are under the burden of the covenant of works, and that's all of Adam's posterity descending from him by ordinary generation. He invites all, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you see the beauty of that heavenly husband? who offers to all who hear the gospel, the covenant of grace, 
this remarriage with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the wonders of this particular husband who cares for and loves his wife with an infinite and perfect love who will never let her go, who will never send her back to her former husband, but will care for her throughout life and for all eternity. This is a universal call for all who hear to come to Christ. You yet know Jesus Christ as your heavenly husband. And you who do know Jesus Christ as your heavenly husband, all of you, come to Him. Embrace Him. If you wrestle with sin, a besetting sin in your life today, dear Christian, do not despair. Do not throw in the towel. Come to Jesus Christ. Embrace Him afresh and anew. He will give you the grace and the strength that you need to press on. He will support and deliver you. He is your advocate who comes to the Father with you and pleads His righteousness. Come and leave your burden with Christ and take in faith His yoke of true liberty upon you. Please stand with me in prayer. We come to Thee, our Heavenly Husband, our Savior, who has brought us into the covenant of grace. We praise Thee, our God, that we stand in that grace. We stand in the righteousness of Christ who has purchased all for us. O Lord, we pray that Thou would give to Thy people renewed hope this day as they reflect upon Thy grace and mercy to them in Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou would draw those who are far from Thee unto Thee. Draw those who are laboring under the covenant of works to cast their burden upon Christ and to receive from Christ His glorious righteousness. O Father, we pray that Thou would bless the marriages that are represented here today. O Lord, we pray that Thou would cause Thy people to see the blessing that they have in a Christian marriage, to appreciate, to be thankful, to strive with everything within them to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord within their marriage. We pray, our Father, that Thou would be with those who are unmarried, those who are lawfully divorced, those who are widowed. We pray, Father, that Thou would be with each one in such a degree, Father, that they would know Thy presence with them, that they would know the great love and compassion of their heavenly husband who is with them through all of their pain and heartache, who hears the crying from the bottom of the heart. We pray, Father, that Thou would minister to them this day as well. Bless, Lord, Thy people. Cause us, Lord, to go forth in righteousness and truth and to hold high the banner of Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.